It's not a written response. Uh, I'm going to read, though, from our, our confession, the, the second London Baptist Confession of 1689. This is from chapter six, 17, speaking on the, the perseverance of the saints. And the framers of 1689, I think, articulated it very well. And I'll read that for you here this morning, as it really goes very well with our passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly preserve therein to the end, and to be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, whence He still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession. They being engraved upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all of eternity. There's so much joy in, in that confession and knowing that those who are his uh, will preserve to the end and they will preserve by the power of him. And so let's pray, and, and then we'll, we'll hear the word preached this morning. So. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for this gathering. Thank you for each and every one of your saints throughout the world, throughout uh, all of time. Father, I pray this morning that, uh, that we find joy, and joy to a greater level than, than we had walking in here this morning. Joy in knowing that it is through you that we are anchored to the harbor of, of salvation through your Son. Father, I pray this morning that if there be anyone here that, that does not know you, Father, I pray that your Spirit creates the perfect storm in their heart this morning and that they see clearly and only see the harbor, which is your Son, Jesus, and, and they anchor to it. Father, I pray that you give Cody the words to speak, exhort the truth, and that we collectively come into encouragement and joy in these great truths that are presented in this passage this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews 2 is where we'll be at this morning. We're going to go through the first four verses of Hebrews 2. This is the first warning passage in Hebrews. There are many of them. Um, this is the first one we find. In fact, the, the way this, this passage begins, these four, first four verses, if they were just completely taken out of the book of Hebrews, the flow would still make sense. If it went straight from the end of chapter 1 to verse 5 of chapter 2, the, the context, the passage would make complete sense. Verses 1 through 4 are an interjection into the thought of Hebrews. It's, it's a warning that's injected into the thought in order to, 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 to give the hearers a, an urgency concerning the message which has been spoken to them. The, these passages are a lot harder um, to preach, but also uh, even to understand. It's, it's, it's very easy 
in some respects, to, to proclaim Christ and to rejoice in the magnificence of him as our Savior. But when we come to passages like this, a, a, a big reality sets in, and that reality is that there are some who will not claim Christ. There are some who will not persevere unto the end because they do not believe upon Christ. There, there is the, the, the seed that is planted in the good soil, and there's the seed that is planted on the rock. And these passages make that truth very, very close. What happens here is the author of Hebrews, after proclaiming the great glory and magnificence of Christ, looks at the hearers and says, now what are you going to do about it? What, what, what is going to happen with these great truths that you have been, that you have now heard. Passages like this in the book of Hebrews serve to demonstrate that the teaching of this epistle is not merely theoretical and unrelated to the realities of everyday life, but is intensely practical and therefore full of intense seriousness. We have to, we have to realize as we study this epistle that the theology is unfailingly wedded to practice. Shailin would say that theology is the study of God. Doxology is a response of praise to God, an expression of praise to God. All theology should ultimately lead to doxology. If theology does not lead to doxology, then we've actually missed the point of theology. Or in the words of Spick, saving truth is not just speculative, it governs the whole life. Our passage today begins with the word therefore, which would lead us to look up back up to chapter 1 and recall to mind what we've learned. Hebrews has already proclaimed and proven that Christ is eternally exalted, that he's been brought to the right hand of the Father on high, that, that he is over the angels, that God has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He's been appointed by God as the final authority to which all of us stand or fall. Naturally, that should lead us to pay close attention to what Christ says. Because if we get Christ wrong, we have hell awaiting us. If we get Christ wrong, we have no hope. The theology of chapter 1 is super practical, and the practicality of Christ's kingdom is not simply a suggestion. This, the reality of this truth demands a response. Since Christ is king, and he's exalted above the heavens, since Christ will judge his enemies in righteousness, more precisely, since this king has offered only one way of salvation, He's offered only one way to be made a part of his kingdom. This demands that every hearer of the news makes a decision. We're presented today with a crucial question. What will you do? Will you pay close attention to what you have heard concerning Christ or will you drift away? Does the message of this great salvation found in Christ affect you? Is it a truth you hold to through life's troubles and pains? When, when the reality of sin kicks in and you're left to see yourself before the holy God of Israel and you look upon his holiness and you see yourself as a complete wretch, where do you go? 
What or who will you cling to? How do you respond? Do you fall at his feet in accordance with his promise and trust and trust that he will save you? Or do you just try to, to, to do something else? Do you try to just work harder, hoping that maybe you can just make yourself right? Do you keep looking back at those commandments delivered by the angels, which failed to ever deliver you, and keep thinking that maybe, just maybe, this time it'll work? Brothers and sisters, we've been living in this flesh long enough to know that it's constantly waging war against us. We're in a fight against sin, striving for holiness, yet we fail so often. So who or what are you going to cling to? Where does your hope lie? We're completely incapable of winning. So let's read our passage today in accordance with all that we've read in Hebrews 1. Let's look at this warning given to the Hebrews. This is the living word of God. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proves to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God himself bore witness by various signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the reality of this truth, the fact that that there is only one Redeemer, the fact that, that we have no one else to cling to, let that truth dwell deep within us today. Let the truth of Christ and the reality of the pains of hell dwell deep within us this morning. May we see the just punishment that is deserved for transgression and disobedience. May we cling to Christ as our only hope. And Father, if there be any in here who are in danger of drifting away, would they see the gloriousness of Christ as the only way of salvation? Would they see the sure and steady anchor of our soul? And would they turn their eyes upon Jesus and trust in him alone? In your name, in Christ's name, our great high priest. Amen. There's one point one point that I want to make strongly this morning, and that point is, is followed by three sub-points, I believe, that the author of Hebrews makes. There, there's one thing in this passage that is absolutely clear. Christ's word has authority. Christ's word has authority. This Christ has been given authority over everything and reigns as king, therefore his message is of utmost importance. As chapter 2 states, we must give it a deep and reverent attention. If we don't, verse 1 says we're in danger of drifting away. And if we are to miss or neglect so great a salvation, the question is posed, how shall we escape? So what I want to do this morning is labor hard on verse 1. 
that we must pay closer attention to what Christ has said. And then that'll be supported by the, the following verses, the three following subpoints the author of Hebrews makes. So, subpoint one will be that this message is greater than the angel's message. Subpoint two, this message was declared by the Lord. And subpoint three, God provided various witnesses. This message is greater than the angel's message. It was declared by the Lord, and God provided various witnesses. Look with me then. At verse 1, what we read here as, as must pay closer attention is, is perhaps not the best translation of the words. The thought is not necessarily comparative in so much as, like, like we read it here, um, it's, it's more superlative. So the thought, as Hughes would translate it, we must pay the closest attention. Or as Dr. Martin would say, we must give the most extraordinary attention heed. We're we're not saying you have to pay more attention to this than you pay to this, or you have to pay more attention to the gospel than you pay to this. What we're saying is the gospel needs to be your attention. It deserves the closest attention, the most extraordinary heed. The truth of the gospel ought to be the axis of your life. Your, your day must rotate around the truth of the gospel. Every thought, as Paul would say, ought to be submitted unto Christ. This is not a suggestion or even an obligation, but A.T. Robertson notes that the word must in our verse speaks to necessity. If the gospel, says John Owen, be not more unto us than all the world besides, we shall never continue in a useful profession of it. In fact, the wording here of paying attention and is translated in 1 Timothy be addicted to. When we're told that deacons, elders cannot be addicted to much wine. Same word. So so Robert Paul Martin, he explains, the drunkard has an extraordinary, single-minded devotion to his habit. He is consumed by it. His life revolves around it. His addiction rules his thoughts and actions and suffers nothing to interfere with his desires. Likewise, As the drunkard is consumed by his liquor, and an addict is wholeheartedly devoted to his drugs, so if we desire to escape God's wrath, we must be extraordinarily addicted to Christ and the gospel. Again, this is not suggestion or even obligation. This is necessity. The truth displayed in this verse is that our life depends upon this truth. Not only does this word, prosecco, which we translate as pay attention or take heed, denote a life-altering addiction, but it's, it's also a nautical term, meaning it's, it's, it's used in reference to ships. So you can picture with me here for, for a second the imagery that is being brought to focus as we read this. There's a ship near the port. It has not yet entered the port. And if the ship never enters the port, then the tide will make it drift away. There are two options with no middle ground. The boat is secured, or it drifts away. In the words of Westcott, to drift away is metaphorical of being swept along past the shore anchorage, which is within reach. The author is pleading with you, and I am pleading with you, if you are not held firm that by the sure anchorage that is Christ, then you will drift away. If you have not accepted, received, and continue to rest alone upon Christ... For your sanctification, justification, and eternal life, then you will drift away. 
When a boat is out on the waves and tide of the sea, there is no force the boat has to exert to drift. It simply does. If the boat is not anchored, it drifts in the direction of the waves. Sit there and do nothing. And the tides of this world, the deceitfulness of sin, will drag you into an apostate disobedience. There is only one message, one truth that offers safety, that offers refuge, that offers salvation from the pole and tides of this world. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. In the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. So we ask the question, why do we have to give this message the most attention? Why is it a problem for us to drift away? Subpoint number one, this message is greater than the angel's message. This is something we've been talking about for weeks now. We read that the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received its just retribution. Upon which the question is asked, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? As we discussed last week, this message declared by angels is the law. Exodus Exodus tells us the law came with thunder and lightning, and it was so terrifying that that Moses said, I tremble with fear. We're told that the Lord came from Sinai. He came from 10,000 of his angels with flaming fire at his right hand. There was smoke, and there was a voice that made the hearers beg that no further word be spoken unto them. As angels mediated, this law came with great glory. And lest anyone doubt the steadfast, unalterable nature of this law, the Lord's message from the angels received its just retribution. Every transgression or disobedience of that message received a just retribution. Two words are used here. Marvin Vincent defines transgression as stepping over the line, the violation of a positive divine enactment, and disobedience results from neglecting to hear, from letting things drift by. There are times when you know the command. You know the command is true. You know that you ought not do that and you do it anyway. That is transgression. There are times when we fail to listen to what God has said. We, we fail to read what God has said. We fail to consult God before we do something. And we sin. That is disobedience. But whether it is by commission, an act that is, is sin, or by omission, an act that just neglects to do what is right, nevertheless it is sin, and it deserves its just retribution. If you would turn your copy of God's word back to Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. I want us to see just how real this is. Just how real the law of God is. Anyone 
anyone who can hear all of this said and think to themselves, I can obey, has no true view of himself. We're told in scripture that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So if you're able to perfectly keep God's law, congratulations, you're headed to glory. But if you're like the rest of us, and you've disobeyed, and you've transgressed, then you cannot find life in that law. The unassailable truth of just punishment is not something we can just wave a hat at. This reality ought to put fear in the hearts of transgressors. In Deuteronomy 27, verse 9, God commands Israel to stand on top of Mount Ebal. And what happens, as, as, as they're commanded to do this, is, is Israel's going to stand on top of this mountain. And curses are going to be proclaimed. Rules are going to be proclaimed. And, and, and someone's going to shout out and say, Cursed be everyone who lies. Cursed be everyone who steals. Cursed be everyone who X, Y, Z. And then all of the congregation is going to reply and say, Amen. And so a curse is going to be pronounced over Israel. And all of Israel is going to reply and say, let it be. Let all of these curses fall upon me if I fail to keep your commands, O God. Deuteronomy 28 lists the curses that will fall upon them. In verse 15 we read, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord then spends the next 50 plus verses detailing just how destructive this is going to be. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Verse 26, your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Verse 54, the man who is most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother and the wife he embraces and to the last of the children whom he has left so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating. Because he has nothing left. Verse 58. If you're not careful to do all the works of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And all of this is just a taste of the amount of justice that was poured out among disobedient people throughout history. In Ezekiel 18, we see the phrase repeated multiple times, the soul that sins shall die. And at one point, our Lord clarifies, the blood shall be upon himself. We read in the scriptures of 23,000 Israelites dying in one day because they acted immorally. There were others that were crumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. We read of a man being stoned to death because he refused to honor God's Sabbath day. Of Uzzah dropping dead immediately because he touched the Ark of the Covenant. Of Jeroboam's arm drying up as he reached it out. We read of boys getting mauled by she-bears for mocking Elisha. 
What does every sin deserve? Asks the Boys and Girls Catechism. The answer? The anger and judgment of God. This message declared by angels proved itself to be reliable. As all throughout history, liars died for their transgression. The sexually immoral were stabbed through and high-handed sinners were stoned. Every transgression and disobedience received its just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And take a step back with me real quick. That law, those curses that were put upon Israel for their disobedience did not just apply to Israel. This law has been written on all of our hearts. Certain ceremonial and judicial laws, perhaps, applied only to Israel. But the moral law has been written on man's heart since Adam, and it binds mankind to a personal, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life upon the fulfilling of his commandments and threatened death upon the breach of them. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law that are justified, but the doers. Do you understand how intensely we have failed to keep God's law? Is it clear that the message declared by angels will only serve to condemn us. And if it's clear, then how shall we escape? Do we have anywhere else to run other than the arms of our dear Savior, knowing as we do from chapter 1 that he is a great king, and it's as if he's wetting his sword over the transgressor to cut him off from the face of the earth? Where else is there to go except into the arms of that same king, trusting in his promise that he will deliver those who come to him? Where else is there to go except to the one who has the power over your life and your death? The law was delivered by angels, yes. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You can't run from God's law. Go ahead and try to plan the most elaborate escape, but Christ's eyes are like a flame of fire, and he sees everything. The righteous requirement of the law must be fulfilled for any one of us to enter eternal life. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. In our passage next week, we're going to see that Christ is the only one who has actively obeyed the law of God. His obedience must be accounted to us who have transgressed the law. He must receive the retribution for our disobedience, and his righteousness must be imputed 
to us. The only option of our escape is this great salvation. This message that is superior to the one delivered by angels. The law, says Cahoon, was was displayed in tremendous form before the Israelites in order that self-righteous and secure sinners among them might be alarmed and deterred from expecting justification in the sight of God by works of the law and that convinced of their sinfulness and misery, they might be persuaded to flee speedily to the blessed mediator and to trust in him for righteousness and salvation. This is the answer to the problem of drifting away in verse 1. Pay closer attention. Flee to the great salvation. Dock your boat in the safe port of the salvation found in Christ alone. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. While the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. So what makes this message greater than the angels? Subpoint number two, it was declared by the Lord. It was declared by the Lord. As we've spoken about over the last two weeks, this message was superior in its delivery. As Hughes says, the message declared by God through angels at Sinai is exactly balanced here by the declaration that the gospel was spoken by God through the Lord. So both are passives. Even even though it was human evangelists who brought the Hebrews the saving message, the true mediator of that message is the Son himself whom he has already shown to be incomparably superior to all angels. It has already been established in chapter 1 that Christ is Lord. So now the author simply says, the message came from the Lord. From Christ, then, we had apostles who were sent under his authority. The apostles were appointed by Christ to speak his word. And they were given authority by Christ to proclaim the word. When the apostles proclaim the message of Christ, that message comes with the authority of God. Hence, we call the Pauline epistles God-breathed. Those apostles were given the authority by Christ to lay the foundation of the church. And they laid that foundation by proclaiming the word that Christ gave them. So, God appointed a means that that those who were not alive, were not there and present to see Christ as he walked this earth, would still hear the message of the gospel. And the apostles then went out with this message and brought salvation to the whole world. The proclamation of these attesters that we speak of here in Hebrews is simply that of historical fact. They're coming and they're saying, listen to what we saw. Listen to the message we heard. We we saw Christ die according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. They proclaimed the historical fact of the coming of the Messiah. They proclaimed that he fulfilled all that is written of him. So the authority of these witnesses comes from the fact that they are repeating a message declared by the Lord. Our Lord came down to earth and proclaimed salvation, and then they attested to it. 
Within this, God chose to bear witness to the accuracy of their proclamation with signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That brings me to sub-point three, various witnesses. There, there are four different witnesses described here. Signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Calvin summarizes the first three super well. They're called signs, he says, because they rouse men, men's minds that they may think of something higher than what appears. And wonders because they present what is rare and unusual. And miracles because the Lord shows them in a singular and an extraordinary evidence of his power. We call these sign gifts. And classic Reformed theology teaches that they passed away with the passing away of the apostles. God had a specific purpose with these gifts, as we read here in Hebrews. The point of these signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit at this point was to show the efficacy of the message being proclaimed by these attesters. In other words, the people would come and say, listen to what we've been told. Listen to what we've heard. This is coming from God. And then God would prove that it's actually coming from him by doing something only God could do. So, so he, he gave signs that would rouse men's mind to something higher than him, themselves. Something higher than what is even happening. We see an example of this, perhaps in John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then he says, I'm the bread of life. So the bread they ate wasn't really just, the miracle wasn't just about making a bunch of bread. The miracle was a sign to point them to something greater, which is the, the, the bread of life that is eternal and everlasting that is found in Christ. That's a sign. A wonder is simply something that just proves that it's something extraordinary. You look at that and you say, how is that possible? Only by the hand of God. Miracles act in the same sense. A good example of this is, is in Acts 2. When they're all gathered together, people from different languages and tongues, and they're all speaking and understanding each other. Speaking different languages, and yet they all understand each other. God intervened in a miraculous way. And it was clear to, to those who were willing to listen there that something extraordinary was happening, and it had to come from God. Hence, the delivery of the message by Peter had to be from God. God didn't need these to prove the gospel. He was using this to show the truth of the message being proclaimed by fallen man. So what's the point of that? What's the point of, of, of the author speaking of this? If any one of the Hebrews were to object and say, but the angel's message came with great glory, the author would reply, Look how much more glory the message of Christ came with. And if any of the Hebrews were to, were to try to exalt the message of the angels above that of Christ, the author of Hebrews says that message was delivered by angels, this one by the Lord himself. Sinai had fire and smoke and darkness and a message that said, do this or die. The Lord comes with great miracles and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit with a message that says, eat of the bread of life and live forever. If anyone was to claim the Old Testament had prophets filled with the Holy Spirit, 
the new covenant has much more. If the salvation is neglected, if this salvation is neglected, then the hearer is without hope. In the words of Calvin, if the law given through angels could not have been received with contempt, contempt, and if its transgression was visited with severe punishment, what is to happen, he asks, to the despisers of the gospel, which has the Son of God as its author and was confirmed by so many miracles? How? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You've been sitting under the preaching of the word long enough to know God's righteous requirement expressed in the law. You've been sitting under the preaching of the word long enough to know that you can't meet that requirement. You've been sitting under the preaching of the word long enough to know that your sin defiles every part and parcel of you. You've been sitting under the preaching of the word long enough to know that all your most righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. The truth has been proclaimed to you that you will have to stand before the Lord of all the earth and give an account for every deed you did, every word you spoke, every movement you made. You know fully well that you don't stand a chance before the holy God of Israel. been sitting under the preaching of the word long enough to know that God has provided only one means of salvation. You've been sitting under the preaching of the word long enough to understand the manner in which Christ takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness. You have heard the word with power concerning the, the ascension of Christ, the glory of the right hand of the Father, and his eternal kingship over everything. You know that he will return with eyes like a flame of fire. And that he will destroy and devour wicked sinners. So let me ask you, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation as the one offered in Christ Jesus? What is your backup plan? Where is your hope? Where are you going to flee to? Forget your people in your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. Christ, the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. And as we all this morning, by the grace purchased at the cross of our Lord Jesus, get to come to his table and partake of his body and blood, pay the closest attention to the covenant that was inaugurated by that body and that blood. Pay the closest attention to what you are holding in your hand. This is given to show forth the sacrifice of Christ in his death. We are partaking of communion together today because we believe that Christ is the only way of salvation. Because we believe that his sacrifice, that his atoning work of the cross, is what every sinner must flee to, to be saved from the wrath of God expressed in the law.
who believe that that new covenant in the body and blood of Christ allows us to approach God's throne boldly. We're proclaiming in this communion that Christ is superior to the angels. This is a means of grace that God has given us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to turn our eyes to the hillside, to turn our eyes to the heavens and await till our king returns for his own. Await that day when he brings us home to glory. Christ, the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death, when the trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storm that we endure. Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Join me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, how amazing it is to see the extent of your grace as we behold the righteous requirement of the law. As we see how we, along with everybody else, have failed. Have failed to keep that law, to do what is required of us to enter salvation. So help us, Lord, as we gather as saints, as we encourage one another, as we partake of communion. Oh, Lord, help us to look unto Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Help us look to that great second Adam who has done what the first Adam never could do. And although we have been born into sin and misery, we thank you for the redemption of that second Adam that brings redemption and life to all who believe. Father, hold us in your mighty hand. Keep us from drifting away. Keep our eyes set on you because we are so weak and so feeble. The worries of the world and the temptations of all that is of the flesh are so close surrounding us. Put your armor upon us, Lord. Protect us from the evil one. May we live our lives to the glory of your name, abounding in good works, abounding in thankfulness and love and praise to the Redeemer of Israel, to the firstborn, to the great King. Lord, so often we would be pulled away. But sanctify us, Lord. Sanctify us in your truth. Bring us back unto you and help us. Guide us. Lead us to persevere unto the end. Trusting in that great sacrifice and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name and by his sufficiency that we pray. Amen. As I read earlier from the, the confession of that preserving power of God, uh, <clears throat> this purchased through Christ and his sacrifice, I'm going to read here 
uh, from the Baptist Catechism, uh, speaking on the Lord's Supper. And just to bring ourselves into to remembrance of, of this great sacrifice and also who it is to, that, that partakes in the Lord's Supper. So question 102 of the Baptist Catechism says this, What is the Lord's Supper? Answer, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to his appointment, his death is shown forth, and the worthy receivers are not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. The next question says, who are the proper subjects of this ordinance? Answer, they who have been baptized upon a personal profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from dead works. And lastly, what is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Answer being, it is required of them that would worthily partake in the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves to their knowledge to discern the Lord's body of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthy, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. So that examination that uh, Cody so perfectly articulated there is not looking to ourselves, but looking to Christ and Christ alone as the, the sufficient means of salvation. And, and so as we partake in communion this morning, let's just do so joyfully with knowing that, that it is finished and, and that those who are in Christ, uh, their salvation is, is kept in the harbor. Uh, that is, that rust and mo- or, sorry, mo- mo- moth and rust cannot destroy. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this ordinance, uh, the continual remembrance of the great sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that you bless the elements, set them aside for a holy use, and as we partake, as we partake in the bread, uh, we pray that, uh, the, the echoes of the, the sounds of the truth of your son Jesus and that his giving of his body for us and as we drink the juice that uh, we bring in to remembrance of that great sacrifice, the outpouring of his blood that had covered our sins. Father, I thank you again for this joyful time that we get to partake in this ordinance and together as you have brought us all into to one flock. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.